All right, well, good afternoon, everyone. Thanks for coming out. And um, we're going to shift gears here from the science of how the brain works to developing uh, in more detail what we talked about this morning in Sabbath school um, on the sanctuary theme of the book of Revelation. So this afternoon, what we're going to do in this session is um, the title of the message is The High Priest and the Second Advent Movement. So we're going to look at Christ's work as high priest, especially as it relates to the Second Advent Movement. And I'm going to give you some detail that I didn't have time to get into this morning. So let's go ahead and bow our heads for prayer, and we will get into this session. Father in heaven, thank you so much that we have this opportunity to be at this meeting and to study your word, and I pray that you will guide us through this session, and may we have a clearer understanding of what Jesus is doing for us right now as our great high priest. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so when we look at Jesus in the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And one of the things that really jumps out at me when I study the book of Revelation is that Jesus is revealing himself based on his titles in the book of Revelation. So now, were all of you here this morning? Or at Sabbath school? Okay. And some of you were not. Okay. So that's okay if you weren't there this morning. But basically what I showed this morning is that Jesus has a variety of titles in the book of Revelation. And in the seven churches, he's the son of man. In the seven seals, he's the lamb who was slain. In the seven trumpets, he's the angel with a censer in his hand. He's revealing himself. And those titles describe functions that he has to produce something. Now, what we saw is that as the Son of Man, he came to seek and to save that which was lost, Luke 19, 10, Matthew 18, 11. And he does that work of salvation because he's the lamb who was slain. And he also does the work of salvation as our high priest, who's the intercessor, whoever lives to make intercession for us. And he's in the midst of the churches doing the work of salvation. And in the seals, there are all the martyrs for the faith. But there's the promise that Jesus was slain and he'll be resurrected. And he's also interceding on our behalf. But then there's the next layer that I showed you this morning. That not only is Jesus son of man, lamb that was slain, and the angel with a censer in his hand. Revelation chapter 1 verse 5 shows that he's the faithful witness, the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth. And if you study that out carefully, he's especially the faithful witness in the churches, especially to the Laodicean church, where he's the faithful and true witness, giving testimony in court about the judgment of our church. And he's the first begotten of the dead in the seals because there's the promise of the resurrection. And he's the prince of the kings of the earth because when he finishes his work as our great high priest, he's coming back as king of kings and lord of lords. Now, Jesus especially does his work as faithful witness, first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth from the most holy place. And remember, the book of Revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ. When Jesus 
finishes that work in the most holy place, he has a special group of people known as the 144,000 who are the revelation of Jesus Christ. So when Jesus is the Son of Man and the Lamb who was slain and the angel with a censer in his hand, who's also the faithful witness and the first of the begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth, all of those are job titles that reveal who Jesus is so that he can produce a group of people who are a revelation of himself. And he especially produces that production of himself from the most holy place through the second advent movement. So that's what we're going to zero in on this afternoon. And that to me is pretty amazing. That, you know, sometimes you, know, you just look at the book of Revelation, it's like, oh, okay, so now I understand the message to Pergamos better. They hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Oh, that's bad. And yet you still don't see the big picture that Jesus is the faithful witness. And he's especially doing the work of the faithful and true witness to the second advent movement, the Laodicean church from the most holy place. And when Jesus does that work as the faithful witness to the second advent movement from the most holy place, he produces a group of people who overcome as he overcame. And, and so we're going to develop this a little bit further now. So the high priest and the second advent movement. The first half of the book of Revelation is really describing Jesus as our high priest, so that even though he's the son of man and the lamb who was slain, and yes, he's the angel with a censer in his hand, yes, he's the faithful witness, the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, it's describing Jesus in the sanctuary in heaven where he is our high priest. So when we come then to the Laodicean message, and I'm going to take some time now to give more detail to the nature of the work of Christ as our high priest to the second advent movement. And now, you know, I, I just kind of hit it in passing, message to Laodicea this morning. Now we're going to look at the Laodicean message a little bit more specifically as it relates to Christ as our high priest. Now remember, Jesus is our intercessor who ever lives to make intercession for us. But in the churches, he is the faithful and true witness, the creator, the beginning of the creation of God, and what he says to us, as he says to every other church, I know thy works. Now, it's amazing to me, and this may have been an issue in other, other prophetic churches down through time, but Jesus actually is interested in our works as our high priest as the faithful and true witness in court. And it's interesting to me that Adventists today consider works to be a four-letter word. And I'm not lying. People are like, oh, that sounds works-based. Oh, you can't. And look, I'm not here to advocate a works-based religion, mind you. But I believe Adventism should pay attention to works more than what they do. Because Jesus says, the very first thing he says as high priest, as the faithful and true witness, giving testimony in court in the judgment hour, he says, I know thy works. And when we say, oh, works don't matter, 
well, we're contradicting the most important witness in the court. In the only court that really matters. Jesus says, I know thy works. Now, again, you can't save yourself. You can't pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and earn your way to heaven. But your works are an evidence of where your heart lies. So if you're a Seventh-day Adventist and you're um, having a problem robbing banks on the side, chances are, in fact, I'll, I'll be stronger than that, you are not going to heaven. Sorry. If you're robbing banks, you are not going to heaven. If you're unrepentantly robbing banks and continuing to do it, and that's just the way you live your life, you're not going to go to heaven. Jesus says, I know your works. And um, there's a, uh, so I'm just giving an extreme example because I, I don't know of a single person I've ever met that has a problem with robbing banks. But you get the point. That's one of the Ten Commandments. So, Jesus speaking to the Second Advent Movement, speaking to the church, which, by the way, when you look at this, the Laodiceans, the church of the judgment hour, and he says he's the beginning of the creation of God. He is the creator. That connects to the first angel's message. Fear God. Give glory to him. The hour of his judgment has come. Worship him that made heaven and earth. So you have the concept of judgment in the first angel's message. You have the concept of creation in the first angel's message. And in the Laodicean church, you have the concept of judgment because it's the church of the judgment hour. And Jesus identifies himself as the creator. So he says, I know your works. And he says, you're not hot or cold, and because you're lukewarm, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. Now, it's a bit discouraging to me that when we really get our first description of the second Advent movement in the book of Revelation, when Jesus describes the second Advent movement, he says, you make me want to throw up. Just think about that. Because, you know, I shared this morning in Sabbath school, we're the second Advent movement, and Jesus is going to cleanse us, and he's going to come in and change our heart and change our life, and that's where it ends up. But the reality is when you start talking about the second Advent movement, when Jesus, the high priest, the faithful and true witness, who's our advocate, who's our intercessor, when he first describes the second advent movement in the book of Revelation, he says, you make me want to throw up. So sometimes, and I think I've been guilty of this, sometimes we can have triumphalism. We're going to be the 144,000 sealed with the seal of the living God, and we're the second advent movement that the mighty angel came down from heaven to raise up so that the mystery of God can be finished, and we're going to give the three angels messages, and we're going to stand on Mount Zion with the Lamb, and that's all where the second advent movement is heading, and praise the Lord for that. But just remember, the first thing that we see see about the second advent movement is that Jesus says, you make me want to throw up. Just, that's where we start. That's our starting point. Okay? So, we have a better future in, ahead of us. The way Jesus feels about the average Adventist, we make him want to throw up. Sorry. Hate to say it, but that's the way it is. Now, here's the thing. You know what everybody says about the Laodicean message? Yeah, man. Adventists are so bad. 
There, man, look at those people. I mean, we have people that are into drums and rock music, and they're like into all this contemplative prayer in the emerging church, and look how bad they are. God, I thank you <laughs> that I'm not like that. I pay tithe, and I still read the spirit of prophecy. I thank you, God, that I have the truth. I'm rich with truth. I'm good. You know, I've given this message several times on Audioverse, so I'm trying to put a, a new emphasis on it. For those of you listening on Audioverse, it's not going to be exactly the same about Laodicea. Because I've rightly gone after Adventists who think they're on their way to heaven but don't believe any of the truths of Adventism. And that certainly applies to the Laodicean message, certainly. And I'm not here to say, oh, yeah, go out and do the emerging church. No, 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 no. Please stay away from that toxic stuff. You get me. But we can be like that, that Pharisee that looks at the people in the church that are clearly going against God, they're not following the Bible. They're not following the spirit of prophecy. And because we have the right externals, we are at least turned off by error that we use that as our excuse for not having a living relationship with Jesus that produces a transformed life that leads to soul winning. So I'm going to show you a few things here. You know... He says, you make me want to throw up. And then he says, the reason why you make me want to throw up is because you say, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. Now, Jesus defines what it means to be rich in verse 18. He says, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire that you may be rich. And in 1 Peter 1 verse 7, Peter says that the trial of your faith being much more precious than gold that perisheth though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise, honor, and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. So it's the trying of your faith. So to be rich, according to Jesus, is to have faith. And Ellen White adds to it, it's faith and love. So you have faith, and you have love. So you're actually a nice person. So you have faith in Christ, and you're a loving person. So in other words, here's Laodicea's problem. And this is what the high priest, the faithful and true witness, is saying to Laodicea. You make me want to throw up because you say you are rich. Because you say you have faith. Because you say you have righteousness by faith. And Jesus would say, especially to conservative Adventists, listen, Adventists, just because you understand that Jones and Wagner taught the right message does not mean that you have faith. You can know it all right here and then say, oh, good, I can show you from the Bible what faith is. And I can show you that if you're still sinning, you really don't have righteousness by faith. I am rich. I am increased with goods. I have the message that will allow me to receive the seal of God. Praise the Lord. This is the translation message. And you know what it is. But too many of us know it, but don't live it. And Jesus says, that makes me want to throw up. You know the truth, but you're not living it. And here's what happens. So a lot of us are actually like Jones and Wagner, who 
they knew the truth, but they didn't live the truth, and then they, anyway. So Jesus says, okay, you want to be rich? Buy gold tried in the fire. Here's what happens to a theologically informed Seventh-day Adventist who doesn't have gold tried in the fire, who doesn't have genuine faith. They've read the Bible verses. They understand that faith will produce a Christ-like character. But then the trials come, and here's what happens. <laughs> wait, wait a minute, God. I know that we can have victory over sin, but this is a little bit much right now. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take over the driver's seat. Okay, here's the trial. I'm, I'm in charge now, God. And then our unchrist-like character comes out. We don't trust in God to get us through the trial. And we either have doubt, discouragement, anger, whatever the case may be. And so the very thing that God is trying to use to perfect our character, we're allowing to burn us up. And so the trial that's supposed to remove the impurity is burning us up and destroying us, but God is trying to purify us. So the high priest speaking to the second advent movement, Jesus is saying, you say you're rich and increase with goods and have need of nothing, and you do not know. Here's the problem. You do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Now this is a problem. Because Jesus is giving expert testimony in court. He's the expert witness. And, you know, you can go to your pastor or your favorite speaker, and they can tell you this or that or whatever, but Jesus' word in court is going to trump whatever your pastor says from the pulpit. And if your pastor is telling you, a variety of different things such as either one, oh, you don't really need to have victory, Jesus will cover you, and you'll just go straight to the kingdom, or some kind of a version of like, you know, I mean, I heard a pastor recently say, well, as long, if we just studied our Bible more, then, then Jesus would come, and I was like, yeah, there's more to it than that. Bible study alone is not going to usher in the coming of Jesus. There's a lot more to Adventism than Bible study. Now, Bible study is important, but if all you do is study the Bible and don't share, anyway. So, Jesus is saying, you don't know that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. So here's, here's the problem. So we say, oh yeah, emerging church, one project, drums, rock music, Oh, celebration, and oh, it's new theology. Oh, oh, bad, bad. At least I know the truth, God. I thank you I'm not like that. And you do not know that your bad attitude about everybody who's off in the church is actually an indicator that your heart is not right with God either. And so you comfort yourself in saying, well, Jesus will look favorably on me when he comes because at least I didn't go for the error. And yet Jesus is going to say, if you don't have a living relationship with him, depart from me, I never knew you. 
So look, it's good to stand for the truth. It's good to write articles that identify heresy and to point out the reason why this is error and the reason why we shouldn't do this in our church is because the Bible says this and the spirit of prophecy says this. And that is all very good. But if that is the extent of your relationship with Jesus is defending truth while not spending time with Jesus who is the truth, then you are a description of someone who is rich and increased with goods in your mind and thinking you don't need anything else, and yet you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, so that when the trials of life come, you, your faith falls apart, you're murmuring and complaining like the children of Israel, and you're having the experience of Romans 7, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? You're wretched and you're doing the things that you don't want to do, you're not doing the things that you want to do, you're in slavery to sin, but you comfort yourself in your mind by saying, because I know the truth and because I defend the truth, and when the board meeting comes up, I speak out against women's ordination, somehow that's going to replace a heart transformation with God and a living relationship with Jesus. And so Jesus says, that makes me want to throw up. And that's the beginning of the, of the second advent movement in the book of Revelation. So you make me want to throw up. Now, look, I've talked about this on Audioverse for people who are listening to this recording, and they've heard this before. You know, I've gone through the whole thing where the new theology, where they teach you, oh, the man of Romans 7 is the converted experience. You're just going to sin till Jesus comes. And so then people in Adventism say, oh, well, because I can sin till Jesus come, I, comes, I have righteousness by faith. I don't need anything else. And so when the true message of Adventism comes, which Ellen White says, when the message of the true witness is given as it should be given, it will cause a shaking in Adventism. You know, people like that are going to go out, but I would, I, I, unfortunately, I would venture to say there are going to be conservative Adventists who are going to tenaciously hang on to the idea that they can get into the kingdom by having a knowledge of truth while not having a living relationship with God, and it's not producing fruit in the life where you're going out and doing soul winning for God. Oh, I don't have to do soul winning, I just study. That's Laodiceanism. That's lukewarmness. Oh, I know the truth, but don't make me share it. Don't make me win souls for God. Well, let me show you what Jesus says as we go on here. So wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Wretched, that connects to Romans 7. Miserable connects to 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul says, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. Here's the startling thing that Jesus is saying to Laodicea. Your problem, Laodicea, is that you think you have hope in Christ that's going to take you to the kingdom, but the problem is it's only in this life, which makes you miserable because you're not really going to heaven if you stay this way. So, you know, it's a, it's a tough, straight message from Jesus, but it's a translation-based message based on the quote that I read this morning from Testimonies, Volume 1, page 187. Now, Jesus says, As many as I love, I rebuke and chase. And then actually he says, Here's what you need. You need to buy gold tried in the fire. That's faith and love. White raiment. That's the righteousness of Christ. So here's the theme of our conference. Christ our righteousness. Laodicea does not have Christ our righteousness. And Ellen White says that the message of Jones and Wagner in 1888 was the message to the Laodicean church. And it uplifted Christ in his matchless charms, and it laid the glory of man in the dust. But whether you're 
relying on the theory of truth to get you through to the kingdom or you're believing on a false theology to get you through to the kingdom. Either way, Laodicea is destitute of the righteousness of Christ. And then um, he talks about um, the ISAV, which is discernment. And certainly there needs to be more discernment in the church. Jesus says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chase and be zealous therefore and repent. So Jesus loves us, so he's rebuking us so that we'll repent. Now here's the interesting thing, and this is verse 20. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man will open the door, and I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. So first of all, Jesus is standing at the door and knocking. Now, if Jesus is standing at the door and knocking, what does that say with respect to his relationship to Laodicea and the Second Advent Movement? He's on the outside. And he's knocking on the door of our heart. He's saying, he's saying let me come in. And Adventism is saying, hang on now. We like Jesus on the outside, and we're in control on the inside. We make the call, and we, we just pray that Jesus will bless our decisions. I'm going to live my life. Lord, please bless my plans. That makes Jesus want to throw up, but anyway. But Jesus is gently knocking at the door. Now, he's standing at the door. He's on the outside, and he's saying, buy gold tried in the fire, white raiment, and Isev, Ellen White describes him here as the heavenly merchant man coming to sell the heavenly wares of gold, white raiment, and Isev. So here's the deal. In order for Jesus to come in, you need to buy what he's selling. And that is faith, that is righteousness, and that is spiritual discernment. In other words, Jesus will only come in if we accept his righteousness by faith. And that tells me that righteousness by faith is more than an outward legal covering because Jesus is saying, I will only come into your heart if you accept my righteousness. So Christ becomes our righteousness where our heart becomes transformed and we become like Jesus. Now, there's something else that's very interesting here. Jesus is saying, if you let me come in, I will eat with you. Now, who is the host and who is the guest? If someone's knocking, who's the host and who's the guest? The guest is the one who's knocking. That means Jesus is the guest and we are the host. In, in this illustration in Revelation 3. Who feeds who, typically speaking? The host feeds the guest. So you're telling me we can feed Jesus? And let me tell you something. This gets to the very heart of being lukewarm. Oh, how can I feed Jesus? I can't feed Jesus. He's the bread of life. He feeds me. What does Jesus say in Matthew chapter 25 when he separates out the sheep and the goats? He says, I was hungry, and you fed me. Naked, and you gave me clothes. I was in prison, and you visited me. 
And here's Laodicea, here's Adventism. Oh, we have the right understanding of 1888, Jones and Wagner. We know the truth. We know that, that spiritual formation is evil. And we know this, and we know that. And we have the truth. We are standing for the truth. When the champions of truth are few, we are gathering warmth from their coldness, loyalty from their trees, and courage from their cowardice. We are standing through the test of the final crisis. And yet Jesus is saying, what are you doing for all these people who need my help? Are you giving my word to them? Are you, first of all, in a, in a literal sense, are you feeding the hungry? Are you giving clothes to the naked? Are you visiting people in prison? Oh no, Jesus, I'm too busy for that. I've got to watch the playoffs. And I certainly don't have time to witness. I can't share the word of God, the bread of life. I'm busy. My career is just busy. I've got to study. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. Blah, 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 blah. That's Laodicea and Adventism. And Jesus is saying, okay, you say you're rich. You have everything you need. Okay, you know that you have the three angels' messages, and yet here is a lost and dying world all around you, and you're saying, I'm just going to do that when the loud cry goes out. Really? You think you're going to suddenly start doing soul winning just at the loud cry when you haven't ever done it your whole life? Come on. That's lukewarm Laodiceanism. Now, on the flip side, the devil has come in with a social gospel that elevates feeding the hungry and clothing the naked, going to the soup kitchens. And now, there's nothing wrong with that in and of itself. But what some of these people do is they're like, let's stop worrying about doctrine and our message. That's offensive to people. Let's just help them. And they miss out on the fact, and you go to Isaiah 58, where you know we fast for strife and debate, and we're arguing about the color of the carpet in our board meeting, and we have huge debates at general conference sessions, which sometimes are necessary, and so forth. But that becomes Adventism, and we fast for strife and debate, and Jesus says, your light will break forth as the morning when you feed the hungry and clothe the naked and all of that. Then the loud cry will come. And so we somehow think that because we have a theoretical knowledge of truth, that that will be good enough to get us through the kingdom. And Jesus say, is saying, if you really want to be ready for me to come, and if you really want to let me come in and experience righteousness by faith, you're going to go out and do the work that I've given you to do. And so James 1.27 says, Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and the widow in their affliction and to keep yourself unspotted from the world. Now, the social gospel says, let's visit the fatherless and the widow in their affliction. And then they say, but who cares about keeping yourself unspotted from the world? And in fact, if you need to do things that go against Scripture to reach these people, do it. That's the social gospel. They would say, Jesus would even go against his own word in Scripture if that's what it takes to reach people. No, 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 that's not how it works. But on the other hand, some of us barricade ourselves off from doing the works of Christ because, oh, that's the social gospel. We don't need to do that. That's for the people that are on the liberal side. We don't need to worry ourselves with that. And we don't 
experience pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father. We're not visiting the fatherless and the widow and their affliction. Oh, the social gospel people can take care of that. And so Jesus is going to say, when he separates out the sheep from the goats, he's going to say, I was hungry and you didn't feed me. You were lukewarm. So when we look at the Second Advent Movement in the book of Revelation, and as we see the high priest giving a faithful and true testimony about the Second Advent Movement, if you wonder sometimes why Laodicea is lukewarm, it's because lukewarmness can fit every class of Adventism. The liberals are lukewarm because they think God's grace will cover them while they keep sinning, and the conservatives are lukewarm because they think that a theoretical knowledge of the truth will be enough to cover up unconfessed sin in their life that they haven't gained victory over, and then they neglect the work that Christ has given them to do. And Jesus is saying, when you surrender, when you let me come in, and you receive true righteousness by faith and love and discernment, you're going to be going out and doing evangelistic work with an entering wedge that includes the health message. And Laodicea has been lukewarm for all these years because the health work has been divorced from the ministry, and then we'll do some evangelism, but then it's kind of just a half-hearted, hey, let's do a checklist. We did our series, and oh, good, we don't have to do that for another three years. Whew! So glad I don't have to knock on doors for another three years. Man, back to just uh, back to just a normal life. I don't have to. It becomes a burden when if you love Jesus, you're going to want to go out and do his work. Let me tell you something. When I was at the general conference session, the most moving thing for me was not the debate on women's ordination. The most moving thing for me was the Saturday night report from Homer Tricartan on the Middle East-North Africa Union and the evangelistic work that they are doing in, in a territory that is closed to the gospel. And you have young people that are over there who are taking on what's called the Waldensian Project, where they're going into a territory and they're using the methodology of the Waldensians where they come into to that society and they befriend people, and they have to be careful because if you are too overt, you're going to lose your life, you know, whatever. And yet they're being used by God to reach people for Christ. And here's the thing, when you really love Jesus, when you really have a living relationship with him, that's what you're going to be doing. Now, it may not be in Algeria. It might be in Loma Linda. But as someone who went to Loma Linda... And as Doug Plata here can attest to, and I've appreciated what you've done to reach some of people like this, there are people at Loma Linda who are not even Christian. And they're right there in our backyard. And I'll tell you this, I regret that I didn't do more in that area. Going to Trinidad helped me to broaden my perspective on some of that. But, you know, here you have people in your backyard. And... God sent them there for us to, to reach them. They're not there for us to say, oh, whatever, you do your thing, I'll do my thing. I mean, now not, you know, we're never going to have a 100% success rate, but there are some people there that would be reached for the kingdom if we're more intentional about it. So anyway, 
Jesus is saying to Laodicea, you think you're rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing because you know the theology of Adventism. That's what he would say to conservatives. But that's not enough. We need to let Jesus come in and experience his righteousness, experience his love, and go out and feed the hungry, clothe the naked, visit those in prison, not just in a physical sense, but in a spiritual sense, so that when Jesus comes, he'll say, come, you blessed of my Father, enter into the kingdom that I've prepared for you. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was sick and in prison, you visited me. And we'll say, when did we do that? It's like, hey, you remember that time when that person who was coming to your church, they went through a really hard time, and you were the one person that reached out to them. You brought food to their house. They were so down, and things were so hard that they didn't even have the energy to cook. And nobody knew that, but you knew that something wasn't right, and you were there. That's the hands and feet of Jesus. And you're not doing it so that like, so now you hear this message like, okay, I better create a checklist. I did 10 visits this month. I'm doing it now. That's legalism. No, when you love Jesus, it's automatic. It's not a checklist like, oh man, I'm gonna have to do evangelism now. If I wanna be ready for Jesus to come, no, 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 no. If you love Jesus, you're going to want to do that. And sometimes evangelism means reaching Adventist friends who don't have the foggiest clue of what the third angel's message is. That's also evangelism. But it's more than that. So, that's what Jesus says to Laodicea, and he says, to him that overcomes, will I grant to sit with me in my throne. There's sanctuary language. Because the throne of God is in the sanctuary in heaven. And Jesus is seated at the right hand of God as our high priest. Will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my Father in his throne? Overcoming as Jesus overcame, that's the faith of Jesus. That's the third angel's message. So that's, as we look at Jesus the high priest in the second advent movement, um, there's plenty more that we could talk about in the Laodicean message. But I hope that that's maybe pricked your hearts a little bit that, you know what? <laughs> I go to Southwest Youth Conference. I go to GYC. I go to my church, whichever one it is. And I love to study the Bible, but I haven't really been helping people. That's being lukewarm. And I'm preaching to myself, but that's what it means to be lukewarm. If you're just sitting on your knowledge and you're not sharing and you don't have a desire for souls, Ellen White actually says, if you've lost a desire for souls, you are lukewarm. I don't have the quote on me, but I could find it for you. If you've lost a desire for souls, you are lukewarm. And what ends up happening to Laodicean Adventism is we become very selfish and inward focused and we start wondering, all we worry about is whether or not I'm saved. I'm rich and increased with goods. That's all I need and we don't have a concern for a lost and dying world around us. And Jesus is saying you need to get out of that state. And when we see Jesus for who he is, 
we will change. So Jesus is seated at his throne and he promises us that we will sit with him in his throne if we overcome as he overcame. Now I want to shift now to the seal. So we're looking at the church of seals and trumpets. Something very interesting here as we shift gears here. Jesus has a special plan for this group of people that make him want to throw up. That's the amazing thing. Jesus has a very special plan for people who make him want to throw up. And as I re- the quote I read this morning, Testimonies, Volume 1, page 187, those who come up to every test and come up to every point and overcome, be the price for what it may, have heeded the counsel of the true witness, will receive the, the latter rain and be fitted for translation. That's a pretty close quote. I, I didn't nail it 100%, but that's the gist of it. You will be, you'll receive the latter rain and you'll be fitted for translation. So this is a translation-based message that, you know what, when you receive Jesus as you should, if you let him come in and you get out of this lukewarm stupor that you're in, you'll be fitted for translation. So God has a special plan for lukewarm Seventh-day Adventists that make them want to throw up. And we start to see that plan in the seals. Now this is something very interesting. And I want you to go to um, Revelation chapter 5. This is the interlude before the seals are open. And in the first four verses... John sees this book that's sealed with seven seals, then no one's worthy to open it, and he weeps because no one could, could open it. And so verse 5, it says, One of the elders said unto me, Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. Now, Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. And the seven seals are very important because as you open up the seals, you know, the first four seals go through the white horse, the red horse, the black horse, the pale horse, and it takes you from the early Christian church that went forth conquering and to conquer, and then it becomes a persecuted church, and then it becomes a compromising church, and then it becomes a sick church. And then by the fifth seal, the souls are crying out under the altar, God, how long is it till you judge and avenge our blood? And then it says there's going to be further martyrs that come after them. Then you come to the opening of the sixth seal, which is the great Lisbon earthquake of May 1, 1755. And then you have the the dark day of 1780 and then the falling of the stars in 1833. And then you have language of the second coming at the end of Revelation 6. Although you don't see Jesus coming in the clouds, but you have the the rich men and all the kings of the earth calling for the rocks and the mountains to fall on them, hide us from the face of the wrath of the Lamb, who shall be able to stand? So you have second coming language at the end of the seals. But before the seventh seal is opened and there's silence in heaven for, for half an hour, there's this interlude in chapter 7 where we see that the four winds are being held until the 144,000 are sealed. Now, the 144,000 clearly come from God's last day church, the second advent movement. So, in the churches, 
the picture we see of the second Advent movement as the high priest describes the Advent movement is that the Advent movement makes Jesus want to throw up. Yes, we're the apple of his eye, and yes, he died for us, and yes, he loves us with an everlasting love, but it doesn't change the fact that he says we make him want to throw up. And by the way, Everybody tends to say, but that doesn't apply to me. And you know what? The reason why it applies to you is because you say it doesn't apply to you. <laughs> because you do not know your true condition. So the second half of the movement, we start off, and Jesus says, you make me want to throw up. Yet, when you come to the seals, from the second Advent movement, we see the 144,000 sealed with the seal of God in their forehead. But when you look at how this all plays out, there are seven seals on this book. And in order for this book to be completely unsealed, all seven seals have to be broken. And what Revelation 4 through 7 are teaching, it's actually teaching that in order for the seventh seal to be opened, the 144,000 need to be sealed. Because if the 144,000 are not sealed, there's not going to be silence in heaven about the space of half an hour. Now, what does the title of Jesus as the root of David and the lion of the tribe of Judah have to do with the unsealing of the seals? Because it says he's prevailed to open the seals. So you might be saying, hang on, wait a minute. If Jesus has prevailed to open the seals, what does the 144,000 have to do with the unsealing of the book of the seven seals? Do you get the question? So the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the book with seven seals. So you're like, oh, okay, well, he can just open them sequentially, and you see the early Christian church till about 100 A.D., and then you see the persecuted church till about 313 A.D., and then you see the, the compromising church from 313 to 538, and then you see the sick church from 538 till about 1374, and then the soul's crying under the altar in the fifth seal. I placed that at about 1374 because that's when Wycliffe and the Reformation start. And then the sixth seal is 1755, and then that takes you up to the second coming. But then there's this interlude until the 144,000 are sealed. So we need the 144,000 to be sealed. Then the seventh seal will be open. There will be silence in heaven for about half an hour. That means heaven will be empty while Jesus is coming back to take us home. So what role really does the 144,000 have in the unsealing of the seals? And what does... Jesus as the root of David and the lion of the tribe of Judah have to do with the opening of the seven seals. Well, let me show you something interesting. Go to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11. Starting in verse 1. And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. This is 
speaking of Jesus, right? Who was Jesse? David's father. So if you come from the root of David, biologically speaking, you would also have to come from the root of Jesse. Does that make sense? Okay. So when we look at Revelation 5 and it says that Jesus, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed, here we see that there would come out of the stem of Jesse and a branch would grow out of the roots of Jesse. So the root of Jesse or the root of David, and this is clearly speaking of Jesus, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding and so forth. And you keep on going all the way through and it takes you to the kingdom of heaven. And this is describing all the way through verse 9 what Jesus did on this earth and especially what allows him to conquer was the fact that he, the fact that he died and was resurrected. He came from the root of Jesse, he came from the root of David. And because Jesus died as the root of David, as the root of Jesse, he's prevailed to open the book with seven seals. Does that make sense? Jesus doesn't open the book with seven seals if he doesn't die on the cross. Does that make sense? So when John the Revelator says the root of David has prevailed to open the book with seven seals, that's pointing us back to Isaiah chapter 11 that shows that the work of Jesus on this earth, especially as he died on the cross, he lives a perfect life, his death on the cross is a perfect sacrifice, and is resurrected and ascends to heaven, that gives him the right to begin opening the book with seven seals. Now get this, here's the key point. Jesus ascends to heaven, and as you open the book, book of seven seals. The first seal, especially, describes the early Christian church after Jesus ascends to heaven. So when you open this book, this book is only opened, the book with seven seals, it's only opened after Jesus accomplishes his work on this earth. If Jesus doesn't die on the cross as the root of David, the root of Jesse, you're not going to open the book with seven seals. But Jesus dies on the cross as the root of David, the root of Jesse, so now the book with seven seals can begin to be opened. But mind you, the book will not be completely opened until the seventh seal is opened. And that happens when Jesus comes. So we're going chronologically through history, and in the history of the seals, the last thing that has happened is the falling of the stars in 1833. Now implied in there is the beginning of the judgment in 1844. Then the second coming will come. But so the next thing to happen in the seals is the second coming. Although actually, technically speaking, the sealing of the 144,000. So, Isaiah 11 isn't done though, speaking of the root of Jesse. Go to verse 10. And in that day, there shall be a root of Jesse, which, will, which shall stand for an ensign of the people. To it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. Now, you may not be knowing what this root of Jesse is yet, but notice verse 11. This is powerful. I love this. And it shall come to pass in that day, 
that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people. This is the second gathering of a special people. Who was the first remnant? Children of Israel. And then Jesus dies. Now he's gathering a remnant the second time. And they have an ensign. And it brings rest. What's that ensign? The Sabbath. And it's connected to the recovering of the remnant the second time. And notice this. It's the root of Jesse. Now notice this. Jesus was the root of Jesse. And when Laodicea lets Jesus come in, it's like Galatians 2.20 says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So now you are converted from your lukewarm Laodicean stupor. You actually start evangelizing with the knowledge of truth that you have. And by the way, I hope you don't misunderstand me. You better understand righteousness by faith, the theory of it. You better understand what's error in the church. Don't get me wrong. Don't come away from here thinking that I'm saying, oh, it doesn't matter what I believe as long as I love Jesus. No, 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 I'm not saying that. Just don't replace your love for Jesus with truth without love for Jesus. But anyway, so when Laodicea lets Jesus come in, we are crucified with Christ, and Christ lives out his life through us, and we have the experience of the faith of Jesus, it is now no longer a stretch to say that Jesus, yes, he was the root of Jesse, but because now Jesus lives out his life in the remnant that he has recovered the second time, which is the second Advent movement, that now becomes the root of Jesse as well. Because if we're like Jesus, if we have his character, not only is Jesus the root of Jesse, but according to Isaiah 11, the second advent movement that has recovered the second time is also the root of Jesse. Now, how do I know this is end-time apocalyptic language? Well, if you go down to verse 14, it talks about how Edom, Moab, and the children of Ammon shall obey the remnant. And if you study Daniel 11, at the end of the world, as the king of the north enters into the glorious land, and many, and I believe that the, the glorious land is pre-shaken Adventism, and the glorious holy mountain is Adventism that survives the shaking. But when the king of the north enters into the glorious land, and many Adventists are overthrown or shaken out, it says, Edom, Moab, and Ammon shall escape out of the hand of the king of the north, which is the papacy. And here you have in Isaiah 11, Adventism at the end of the world, which is the root of Jesse, and they're evangelizing. They've woken up from their Laodicean stupor where they're not feeding Jesus. They're actually feeding Jesus now. They're feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, visiting the sick and those in prison, and they're doing evangelistic work. So now Edom, Moab, and Ammon can come in. That's the root of Jesse because we're like Jesus. We're doing soul-winning work. We have his character, and we're doing soul-winning work. So here's the amazing thing to me. When you go back to Revelation chapter 5, when it says, 
Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. Here's the thing. He could open the first six seals based on his prophetic plan of history as he died on the cross as the root of David, the root of Jesse. He dies on the cross as the root of David, the root of Jesse. That gives him the right to open the book, to begin opening the book with seven seals. So we see the early Christian church. So up to 100. Then we see the persecuted church up to 313. Then we see the compromising church up to 538. Then we see the sick church from 538 to 1374. Then we see the Protestant Reformation and the souls crying under the altar. How long, O Lord, till you judge and avenge our blood in the fifth seal? And then in the sixth seal, we see 1755 with the great earthquake and the dark day of 1780 and the falling of the stars in 1833. And then the second coming happens after that, yet there's this interest interlude where we're waiting for the 144,000 to be sealed and then the seventh seal will be open and here's what the Bible is teaching us you want to know when the seventh seal will be open it's when the 144,000 are sealed because then they will be the root of Jesse the root of David that will then give Christ the right to open the seventh seal and to leave heaven to come and take his people home. Isn't that amazing? But that will only happen when Laodicea stops being lukewarm and lets Jesus come in and they feed Jesus. Not only do they accept righteousness by faith, but they actually feed Jesus and do evangelism. Then we'll be sealed. So, and, then, you know, some, and, and again, I've seen this in Adventism, and I've seen these debates, and I've seen sometimes where people say, if we just do evangelism, everything else will take care of itself. And then the other side says, no, we're just going to do evangelism when the loud cry comes. No, no. We do revival and reformation and evangelism together. And it's a harmonious package, which is God's design. And the medical missionary work is part of that, the right arm of the gospel. And that will allow Laodicea, the group of people that makes Christ want to throw up, to suddenly change to becoming the root of Jesse, the root of David, that allows Christ then to unseal the last of the seven seals so that there can be silence in heaven for about half an hour. So we can go back to heaven. Does that sound good? Amen. So Christ, the high priest, and again, he's on the throne. He says if, to Laodicea, if you overcome, you'll sit with me in my throne. And then in the seals, he's seated on the throne. And he plans to seal the 144,000. When we come to the seven trumpets, we see that the throne is moving as the mighty angel comes down from heaven in Revelation 10 to move from the holy place to the most holy place. Here's what we've talked about so far. In the seven churches, especially in the seventh church, that's where the second advent movement is seen. Laodicea is the second advent movement. And Laodicea makes Jesus want to throw up because we think because of our theory and knowledge of truth, it doesn't really matter if we're not doing soul winning. And Jesus says, that makes me want to throw up. So then when we come to the seals, we find out, oh, wait, you know what? 
Jesus is the lamb who was slain. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah, and he's prevailed to open the book with seven seals. And here's the thing. When we see Jesus as the lamb who was slain, and we see his love for us, it motivates us to participate with him, to cooperate with him in doing the work of saving souls. Jesus did the work of saving souls for us. He came and died for us. Now we want to cooperate with him. You're truly converted when you cooperate with Christ to work to save souls. And I'm sorry, and I've been guilty of this for years, but we've been satisfied with just going to good meetings and hearing good speakers and thinking that that alone is good enough to get us into the kingdom. And don't stop having good meetings and good speakers and just say, no, we're just going to do evangelism. No, 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 that's not the solution either. But we haven't been doing the evangelism that we should be doing. So in the seals, we see that the 144,000 come from a lukewarm group of people that let Jesus come in who start doing the work of salvation. And if you look at Isaiah 11, they do the work that call people out from every nation, kindred, tongue, and people as the three angels' messages call us to do. They become the root of Jesse, and that allows Christ it gives him the authority. It vindicates him to unseal the final seal so that the full book can be opened. And Adventism then represents the final chapter in this history. And it's through Adventism that Christ vindicates himself before the onlooking universe to show that the principles of his government have proven Satan false as he puts his seal on the foreheads of the 144,000. I, I think that's a really powerful concept. And honestly, I've never seen that idea before about the root of David and the unsealing of the seals and that Jesus could unseal the first six seals because what he did as the root of David, dying on the cross, that allows him to take us through history to the falling of the stars in 1833 and really to when he goes into the most holy place in 1844. But he can't open the last seal until the second advent movement cooperates with him so that then the final seal can be opened. So God vindicates himself through what Jesus did on the cross and what the second advent movement does in the final judgment hour of earth's history. That's pretty powerful. That gives us a, a unique identity and mission. And it's more than just understanding that theory. It then means to take that knowledge and to share it with the world. We don't just sit on it and say, oh man, I'm so glad I'm going to heaven. It's going to be great to be in heaven and to tell Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I was a Seventh-day Adventist at the end of the world. I studied the Bible so well that I knew the truth. Now, I was too busy with my medical practice to share anything, but I knew the truth, and I'm so glad to be here with you, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's the way the Jews were. No, no, no. If, if we're truly converted, we're going to be doing soul winning. We're going to get out of our Laodicean state. Now, I really don't have enough time to do Revelation 10, which is fine because I can do that in my next presentation tomorrow, um, although some of you may not be here tomorrow. So let me, what I'll just do for the last few minutes before we wrap up here, rather than giving you the detail of Revelation 10, 
what I've tried to do is connect at least the concept of the high priest on the throne, the second advent movement. So Jesus says, if you overcome, you'll sit with me in my throne to Laodicea. Then from the throne, he's the lamb who was slain, who prevails to open the book with the seven seals. Then in the trumpets, we see that he's now moving into the most holy place. Now, I'll, I'll give you this, and I mentioned this this morning. At the beginning of the seven trumpets, Jesus is described as the angel with a censer in his hand at the altar of incense. That's in the holy place. In Revelation 10, he's moving apartments. Why do I say that? Well, he's still described as an angel, but this time as the mighty angel. So he's still the high priest because he was an angel doing a work of intercession at the beginning of the trumpets. Now at the end of the trumpets, he's the mighty angel. That tells me that his work of intercession is going to ramp up even more, perhaps, if you, want, if you could say such a thing, because he's raising up the Advent movement to finish the great controversy. And if you look at it, he has a rainbow above his head. Well, the rainbow was around the throne. That tells me that the throne is still connected to Jesus, the mighty angel. And, and so now, as Daniel 7 says, the throne has wheels, so the throne's going to move from the holy place to the most holy place. Revelation 10, and the work of Jesus as the mighty angel, and the raising up of the second advent movement, really puts the capstone on how Jesus takes Laodicea from being nauseating, from being lukewarm, to being ready to receive the seal of God. And it's the work that he does that Revelation 10 is going to describe as our mighty angel, as our high priest, through the work of the everlasting covenant, through the work of the everlasting gospel, so that the mystery of God can be finished in our lives, so that the character of Christ can truly be reproduced, so that not only do we stop sinning, and sometimes that's what we'll see character perfection as, oh, I'm just going to stop sinning, now, I, I'm, now I'm perfect. Well, first of all, Ellen White says you'll never feel perfect, but the closer you come to Christ, the more sinful you'll appear in your own eyes. That doesn't mean that you'll keep sinning, no. You'll have stopped sinning, but because of your life record of sin in the past, you'll know what you're like when you're disconnected from Jesus. And the closer you come to Jesus, you're hanging on to him for dear life. And you know that when you're not connected to him, you're a wretched sinner. So you're connected to him and you're victorious so yeah, you've stopped sinning. Sure, that's biblical. That's based on the spirit of prophecy. But the perfection of Christ being reproduced in Adventism is so much more than stopping sinning. It means that you're doing soul winning work. That you're taking Jesus to the people. That they're seeing Christ in you, the hope of glory. And when you come to do soul winning work, you know, sometimes when we try to do soul winning work, we're like, hey, did you know that the, the seventh day is a Sabbath and that Jesus is coming soon and you need to get your life right with God because the world's about to end. Get it together, hurry. And people are like, oh, no, I better, I'm scared. I better get ready for Jesus to come. And then it's like the Millerite movement where you had all these people that were with the Millerites on October 22 because they were scared. And as soon as Jesus didn't come, they were like, oh, they were gone. 
and you had 50 people left. No, no. When we truly have Jesus to share with the people, our soul-winning efforts will be effective. So that's really um, the future and the history of Adventism. And so tomorrow in my next presentation, I'm going to develop Revelation 10 because the title for my presentation tomorrow is When the High Priest Leaves the Temple. And so that will connect with what happens in Revelation 10 and Revelation 14 and Revelation 15. So we'll do that tomorrow. But I'm at least giving you a snapshot of because I gave you a lot of detail about Jesus in the Laodicean church and Revelation 3, and then Jesus is the root of David who produces a replica, or no, not a replica, a reproduction. Not just a replica. He produces a reproduction of himself as the root of David in the second advent movement, which then allows him to get, place the seal of the living God in our foreheads because we're like Jesus. And Jesus was the best soul winner in the history of this world. So you go from being lukewarm, not concerned about winning souls, thinking that your theory of truth is enough to save you, to becoming just like Jesus, who was the root of David. Now you're the root of David. Isaiah 11 says he was the root of David. He died. That allows him to begin opening the seals. Then when he reproduces the root of David in the second advent movement, that he recovers the second time through the ensign called the Sabbath. And I'll say this. Saturday keeping is not Sabbath keeping. You get the difference? In order for men to keep the Sabbath holy, they must themselves be holy. Desire of Ages, page 283. So if you're living a sinful life all week where you're into addictions of various TV programs and bad practices and habits, but you don't do them on Sabbath, but while Doug Batchelor's preaching about pride and humility on Sabbath, you can't wait for the sun to go down so that you can go back to your addictions that as soon as sundown comes, you're Saturday keeping and you're not living a holy life. But the root of David that Jesus reproduces, the root of Jesse that Jesus reproduces, has the Sabbath experience all week long. It's that rest that Isaiah 11 talks about that allows God to prepare a people to receive the seal of God to go through the final crisis. And then Revelation 10 shows that Jesus comes down and raises up the second advent movement. The mystery of God is finished. And then we're told we must prophesy again before many nations, tongues, and kings. There's the evangelistic work of Adventism again. Mystery of God finished. And you're prophesying again, doing the work of soul winning to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. That's what Adventism is all about. We love Jesus. We understand all of the truth as it is in Jesus. And we want to share all of the truths of Scripture as they relate to Jesus. Because we love Jesus for what he's done for us. But too often, we've been satisfied with knowledge and complacency. And at least we kept our church officer list biblical. Won that battle. But we're not doing evangelism at our church, but at least we stood for the truth and nominating committee. That's lukewarm Laodiceanism. Now don't start lowering the standards in your church. No. But do more than just fighting and nominating committee for the truth of God. 
I mean, if time should last long enough to have another general conference session, I hope that there will be some maturity in, in the church so that people are more concerned about winning souls for Jesus than fighting over what we just went through. Because that's evidence to me that we're still lukewarm. And again, yes, we need to stand for truth, and yes, there needs to be people to stand for the right, and yes, there's a truth, and yes, there's error. I understand all of that, and I've, you know, I certainly feel strongly about those issues. But if the best we can do as Adventism is to fight over truth and error, if that's the best we can do, we're still lukewarm. And God is calling us to a higher experience. I think that's a good place to wrap up. I've given you a lot to think about, and I want to be part of the root of David. I want Jesus to come in so that I will be feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, visiting those who are sick and in prison, so that people will see Jesus in me, and that I won't be living for myself, but I'll be living for Jesus and for others. And that's what Jesus is trying to do for his people at the end of the world as Revelation describes. So hopefully you've learned a few things that, are, that will be helpful for you going forward. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the blessing of the truth of Scripture. But we pray that we would be desirous of more than just the knowledge of the theory of truth. We pray that we would be desirous of a living experience with Jesus that would cause us to go out and share Jesus with a lost and dying world. And while that may not mean giving a Bible study on doctrine at the very first time we meet someone, it may just mean meeting their physical or emotional need so that we can win their confidence so that they can then open up to us with their spiritual desires as well. Help us to follow Christ's method of reaching souls for you. Thank you that you have been merciful and long-suffering to us who have sometimes been stubborn and stiff-necked in our methods and approaches in the church as far as how to be an Adventist. Help us to be a complete Adventist, standing for the truth of the heavens fall and winning souls for Jesus as well. Thank you for your love and mercy to us. Be with us through the rest of this conference, and we thank you for your blessings, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.